we're going to pick up in our cruise through Exodus. I mentioned at the beginning we're not going to look at every feature of this book. There's um, many parts of the Exodus that are difficult to deal with in this context, but they're part of the framework. Uh, just a hermeneutical principle um, that I like to remind you of that I think is important for all of us to remember uh, in case you don't know what hermeneutical is that's the hermeneutics is a science of interpreting stuff it's not just a biblical or theological term but if you want to interpret anything you need to understand what you're reading and what you're looking at there are certain things that are common sense and things that fit the context But a principle of all good literature is that much of it is background and you can't make points out of every word or every event in the Bible because it's like looking at a painting. Uh, A painting is um, known by its central feature. The artist knows that. There are many background features of a good painting or even background features of good music But what stands out is what the artist wanted you to see. And that's the way the Bible is as well. There are many things in the Bible. Everything is important. We believe every word of it is from God, but much of it is background that sets off what the points are God wants us to notice. It's the background that gives us interpretation skills or gives meaning to the important core points. Uh, And without the background, you wouldn't be able to figure out what the core points are. But uh, that's just typical of all literature. It's typical of music. It's typical of art. It's typical of many forms of communication that the background information sets off the points we are to see. I think it's possible to get hung up on parts of the Bible, particularly Old Testament, that... um, Uh, seem a little bit, well, you might say harsh or confusing to some people. came across an interesting book the other day called The Skeletons in God's Closet. It's a book written by a, uh, well, let me just give you his name because he's from this area. Joshua Ryan Butler serves as pastor of local and global outreach at Imago Dei Community, a church in the heart of Portland, Oregon. He oversees the church's city ministries in areas like foster care, human trafficking, and homelessness. I loan this book to anybody who's interested in borrowing, but it's called The Skeletons in God's Closet, and I think he takes an interesting approach that um, uh, many people are uncomfortable by certain things that they find in the Bible. In uh, an article written by him just recently somewhere else, uh, the title of it is Preach the Bloody Bible. Preach the Bloody Bible. I thought it was a very catching title, don't you think? Uh, but, and it turns out not to be a Britishism, uh, as bloody would tend to be in some other contexts. But the point he was making, and um, another, uh, another guy was actually an interview in Christianity Today, I think it was. But, but his, his point was really simple, and I think it's worth my repeating it. We live where we live in a fairly protected, safe environment. But many people in the world and many people in history have not found subjects like hell, warfare, bloodshed, disease, plagues, ten plagues, have not found those things surprising or shocking because they live with it every day. 
And we in suburban America, we have gotten kind of used to the safe zone. So that sometimes when people look at things that are found in the Bible, they say, what kind of a cruel, antique God do you guys worship? And there are things in the Bible that look that way. But let's not forget that not everybody in the world and not everybody in history has had the privilege of living in suburban American society where generation after generation we have gradually filtered out all of the things that might be shocking to us and created safe zones with medicine. Even our medical care is in sterilized, uh, expensively sterilized places, dietary things, all kind of safety features we built into our, build into our houses, our neighborhoods, our cul-de-sacs, or wherever we live. It's about safety, safety, safety. And that's natural and normal. But the fact is, in the real world, and probably in the world that's coming for even us, it isn't always going to be unbloody. And so I think it's wise for us to remember that in the fallen world, the comfort zone that we have created for ourselves really doesn't exist most places, and probably never has and probably won't for us. So when you encounter these things in the Bible that seem a little shocking, seem a little bloody or even cruel, just remember that this is the real world for most people throughout most history and would not be found to be shocking or offensive by most people. Now we uh, looked, uh, got through the eight plagues by not touching on all of them, but just drawing attention to some of the principles that are available for us to teach in the plagues. Elsewhere in the Bible, and I pointed this out in the series, that God actually, in the book of Isaiah, actually draws attention to the fact that what he was doing for his people and for the people of the world was power and counter. Every one of these ten plagues is addressing the gods of the Egyptian people. And the Egyptian people were a powerful empire at that time. The Egyptian people was not a tribal uh, place. The Israelites were closer to the tribal uh, experience uh, in their history than the Egyptians were. It was a highly established. And the paganism that the Egyptians had for religion was a highly developed uh, religious form, which included the pharaoh being a deity. God. And so the challenge from God to demonstrate to his people and to the world in history that he is God, Yahweh God, the ruler of the, of the universe, was partly what we're dealing with with the plague. Uh, verse 21 of chapter 10, that would be um, what is referenced there uh, on your overhead, page 21. Start with verse 21 of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Now I should point out here that some of your translations may not say darkness that can be felt. Um, uh, simply because it's a little vague, the word feeling around. Um, actually, I think possibly a good translation of that uh, what might be a reference to is, is so dark that you'll have to feel your way around. The word feeling is what is take, being used in this. I don't know. Can you feel darkness? I... I I, I, let me, I tell a little story here about that one. Um, if you've ever been in North Idaho, you may be familiar with the Hiawatha Trail. Hiawatha Trail is a bike trail. An old railroad track turned into a bike trail 
right on the border of Montana and North Idaho, and it's in the mountains. And it goes through a tunnel, a train tunnel, that was over a mile and a half long. And they actually issue you, you uh, lights for your bicycle. But to try and experiment, uh, I got about halfway through that and turned my light off and discovered it was so dark that you could almost feel it. You couldn't stand up straight. You for sure could not you ride a bicycle because your equilibrium is off. It relies on sight, vision, light to function. And you might well know already from some of your uh, science classes that uh, darkness is not a thing. Darkness is an absence of something. Light is waves that emanate and drive the darkness out, but darkness does not drive light out. Darkness is nothing. It's the absence of something. And that's what this last or ninth plague is going to be like for them. In verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Now you might well ask, why didn't they just go out to the car and turn the lights on? Or why didn't they just flip the switch and turn the electricity on? We're talking about Egypt here about 3,500 years ago. And everybody who's studied ancient history knows this, and maybe some people even who have lived in primitive contexts, camping for example, knows that at night you should just stay home. People don't travel at night, there's no light. What light you can create with a lamp isn't much light. It goes about three feet. There's no car lights, there's no street lights, those big mercury vapor lights that irritate you when you're trying to see the eclipse or the falling stars or whatever. There's none of that. In this context, it was dark. And when the sun is gone and the moon is gone and the stars are gone, there's nothing. And uh, they were unable to uh, see anything or go out. Of course, they couldn't go out. They didn't have available to them the light that we take for granted, the, even the artificial light. In verse 24, So then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. Now you, understand, you, you remember from the last one that this is a step up. Uh, Pharaoh is negotiating still. The, in the last plague, he said, You can go, but take just the men. No women and children. Uh, you go on ahead and do this worship experience out in the wilderness that you plan to have, um, knowing Pharaoh knew, what they knew, that they were going to go out and worship, and then once they got out there to worship, God's going to tell them, okay, now keep going. we got a land for you over here. And that was pretty much part of God's plan from the beginning. Whether this was a uh, part of the, uh, the knowledge that Moses had or the others had, I'm not entirely sure, but doesn't actually talk about that strategy. But here he adds, okay, now you can take the women and children too, but you can't take any of the animals. And this is Moses' response. Moses said, verse 25, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now this is a little bit reminiscent of uh, something actually retroactively reminiscent, I guess you could say, uh, what Jesus, uh, when he went to the Israelites, it went into Jerusalem just before the crucifixion. And he appeared before the rulers, the Sanhedrin. And actually, this is kind of what he said. You're not going to see me again. Okay, you're going to have your wish. You're not going to see me again, but the day will come when you'll regret it. You can have your wish. I think there's a little bit of God's way of dealing with humans in this when it comes to free will and the sovereignty of God. Be careful what you ask for. Sometimes you actually get it, and it's not necessarily going to be what you want. Uh, this is exactly what happened with the Pharaoh and Moses. He said, I don't want to see you again. And Moses, picking up on the cue, said, you're right. You're not going to see me again. And that's too bad for you because that is where you cut it off and your opportunities are done. I want to pick up on that theme a little bit in a point later, but let me just add to it here because we're talking about it. Um, God really shouldn't be played with. We talk about and we understand from the Bible the grace of God and his patience. That's the theme today, the title, the patience of God. Think about how long God dealt with this whole thing. It was part of the teaching, the hardening of the heart, the softening of the heart. It was all part of the process, but this was a great deal of patience on God's part, dealing with the Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and the Israelites. And this is how God portrays himself throughout the Old Testament, that he's patient. And the history of God's dealing with humans in general and his people in Israel, that's one of the common themes. God is patient. He keeps going back and give another chance. Uh, he keeps going back and giving them the opportunity to turn around and have a better attitude about things. And, um, and the timing of that is in God's control when it comes to the historic events. But it's important to note that God is a person. Now, we don't mean person as like us. But God is not an abstract concept or force as presented in the Bible. He has personhood. God makes decisions too. You get to make decisions because you're human. God gets to make decisions because he has personality and personhood. And the notion that you can just play with God and put things off and, and just wait until the opportune time for yourself and God has got to be there because he's God and he works for you. That's not the God of this book. The God of this book is patient and has all characteristics that we should be emulating. Patience, kindness, love, fruit of the spirit list is really the character of God. But he's also capable of making decisions. And he doesn't have to make decisions the way we want him to. The grace of God the patience of God, the kindness of God, the gift of salvation are all acts of initiation on his part. All decisions that he made, not things he had to do because he was God and had no choice. What kind of God would have no choice? We sometimes think that we got all the choice, free will, but God has none. He can't do anything except just be 
the force that is in the world. And he has to simply do what he has to do because he's God. Then let's briefly touch on the last plague. I want to come back to this the next time to make some other points on this. And this is um, just 10 verses here. Uh, Let me read this. Chapter 11 of Exodus. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. And then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Let me stop at that point. I didn't mention this in the one about darkness, but the Israelites had light during that one too. In verse 24, it mentions that They had light back in the previous chapter, but they here, they were going to be protected. These are the two that draw attention to the fact that the sufferings that the plagues brought were going to be, there's going to be a line between God's people and those who had imprisoned them for all of these years and turned them into slaves. That this is going to be part of the teaching. This is going to be part of the message from God. These are my people. I'm going to protect them. Now, we cannot extrapolate from that that all things that happen around us, pain and suffering, uh, we're going to be exempt from. In fact, the Bible's got a lot of examples of God's people who suffered various things, hunger and death and war and all kind of things themselves. But there is a point being made here on the historical level that God has a plan for his people that are representing and shining light into the world. He doesn't want his light snuffed out because that's their mission. And he has a mission for them to accomplish. And so there would be a barrier and there's a point being made about those who worship God and those who don't. That's the point being made here that God wanted to draw attention to. In verse 8, all these officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me and saying, Go you and all the people who follow me, and after that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. That why there was no uh, good uh, connections there. Um, go back to verse 7. But among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any man. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all of these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Now, I should uh, remind you again of something I mentioned before, is that there's no indication in this story about and reference to hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 
about Pharaoh's own attitude toward God. God was simply using him because of his position uh, to, to time things and to do things that he wanted done as a display of his power. There's no indication there that God hardened his heart in the sense that, well, now Pharaoh's got to go to hell because God hardened his heart. If you, that's not a point being made here. The point being made here is that God has ways of dealing with powerful political people, leaders, rulers in the world to get what he wants ultimately historically. And the powerful point for us, we see it in scripture and other places, God used Herod, for example, in the life of Jesus. God used, uh, God used many of the rulers, the political rulers, starting with Pharaoh here. Uh, but in other places, that's a, a theme throughout the scripture that God can use them in ways that they don't even know at the time because he is God. And that's what God is good at. Uh, directing things and being in charge of history. Now I want to draw your attention to uh, five points, five takeaways from these two passages. Next week we'll pick up on what this death of the firstborn meant in terms of the Passover. Number one, the, Bi uh, the Bible is gritty in real life. An occasional glimpse behind the scenes is enough to tell us what we need to know and about who's really in charge. TMI will drive us nuts. As some of you know what it, you, you know what it is, the too much information. Sometimes you say that to people that you really don't want to hear everything, every detail of their lives or their story. TMI, too much information. But uh, I think this is an important point. We see glimpses of how God works in history, of how God works in the world, uh, behind the scenes. But mostly... We can only pay attention to and, and manage information that involves our personal surroundings. Now, I'm very happy for people who are in great big political positions, uh, world power. Some people even dream about being king of the world. And I think they're fools, but, uh, and they turn out to be always the ones who dream of that. You see it all the time, these ambitious people who are more destructive than helpful. But a lot of times we kind of think, well, I just wish I knew what God was doing. What is God doing in the world today? This conflict in Syria, for example. Now Russia and the United States are conflicting over a country in the Middle East. Damascus, it's all over the Bible. What's going to happen? You know what? I don't know, and I hope you don't know. Because people go nuts with too much information. That's how prophecy in the Bible works. You get enough information to be tuned into God and to know that he's in control and what you ought to be doing in the meantime, but you don't get so much information that you can play prophet, play power dog. I got secrets you don't have, therefore you should bow when I walk by. Or you'll go nuts if you knew what was going to happen tomorrow. I don't know, we would like to know if you did know. Please tell me what stocks to buy in the stock market if you know what the future is going to hold. If not, put your trust in God and he will direct you if you will keep your focus where it needs to be. Now this business of God controlling the Egyptians, that's given to us in the Bible to tell us that God is ultimately in control of history. But it's not given to tell us 
well, we should instigate this ninth plague on society, and then that'll force them all to turn around and be obedient to Yahweh God of the Bible. Let's do it. Let's cut off everybody's power. Or how about we kill all the firstborn? That'll really scare them into submission to God. You think that's why this information is given to us? So that we will know how to pretend we're God? I think it's there to tell us that God has a plan. And when God makes a decision, he is not subject to the same limitations that we have. I have no idea. I've, I have a degree in history from uh, a university. And one of the things I learned from that is people who attempt, people who attempt to bring about insightful, phenomenal predictions of what's going to happen in history because this happened and this happened and this happened turn out always to be fools because there are so many things you don't understand. I like the expression you'll find in uh, mutual funds or stock purchase agreements. The past history of this stock is not a guarantee of its future performance. That's what it says. And I like that because that's, uh, well, it's just legal protection for these people that are selling it, of sure, but it's true. And we get a glimpse, not so that we can predict, control, or play God, but so that we can know the God we're worshiping. He's got a plan. And he's working that plan, even when you don't understand it and I don't understand it. He's still got that plan, and you get to know that God. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And that's the point in these passages. And number two, if God can harden a heart, he can soften one too. Pray accordingly. This, is, um, this question of free will enters into the discussion. Sometimes people think free will and the sovereignty of God is essentially a Christian uh, problem or puzzle. How can, how can a good guy, a good God, allow all these things to happen? Well, the answer, of course, is free will. I mean, we uh, had this conversation with uh, war veterans many times. Well, you know, I just can't see how a good God would allow the stuff that I saw. Well, my answer to that is simple. It's a question. You tell me one thing you saw that was caused by God and not by a human. Nothing. Nothing in war is caused by God. It's caused by humans. You, what, 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 do you want to live like you don't have any choice? You'd be so angry and hostile and bitter about not having choices in life. You'd be blaming God for creating you without choices. It's not going to work. And the problem really isn't a theological problem anyway. It's a problem of ideas. Some of you may know who Sam Harris is. He's a neuroscientist who's probably one of the most famous atheist scientists in America today. A belief in free will touches nearly everything that human beings value. It is difficult to think about law, politics, religion, public policy, intimate relationships, morality as well as feelings of remorse or personal achievement, without first imagining that every person is the true source of his or her own thoughts and actions. And yet, the facts tell us that free will is an illusion. Now that's the science view, that the laws of science have to be predictable, otherwise there's no such thing as science. 
I say that's an extreme science view, but nevertheless, it's one that's popular and it's out there that you really got no control of anything. Everything is cause and effect. Not just correlation, but cause and effect. You're simply a slave to the events of the world and, and the physics. You're just a slave. This is where the kind of the Bible in this story makes sense. God, who is still God and in control from his perspective, can grant to us the right to work within our own perspective, and he is smart enough to figure out how these things work. I've used this illustration before, and I like it enough to bore you with it again. When you fly out of Portland, most of the times you fly into clouds. The bottom side of those clouds look dark, gray, and nasty. But after you reach a certain elevation, they start to look white and fluffy and bright. Same cloud, different perspective. One's from above, one's from beneath. And that's how this works in the God view of history and life. If God can harden a heart, he can soften one too. Pray accordingly. I suggest that this information about God hardening hearts is a very important and fundamental principle of who God is. Are you concerned about somebody today? Concerned about somebody's condition, spiritually, attitude, emotionally? You know, people who are depressed or down are a great concern. But I'll tell you what's also a great concern and even harder to deal with. People that are angry and hostile and full of hate. Angry at God, full of hate. Full of hate at others. It, it always translates. You get angry with God, you're going you're gonna to hate other people. Those are hard conditions to deal with. And you can try to analyze it all you want based on, well, what must have happened in their lives to make them so full of hate? I got news for you. Hate is a choice. And when God is offering to work in your life, that might be the choice right there. Let God soften your heart I'm like the sun. The sun can melt wax, but it can also dry up mud. And you can get people's hearts can get hardened because they don't like the light they see, or it can soften because they like the light they see and respond to it so I suggest you pray accordingly because if you know somebody maybe a family member or somebody else who's turned their back on God and they're full of hate or going down the tube this is one way to pray for them God soften their heart God soften their heart I don't know how just that's my request God, soften that person's heart and make that person want to see the light and go toward the light instead of away from it. Number three, experience is a good teacher, but only a fool learns no other way. Hitting rock bottom might be needed, but why wait? This is part of the story of the ten plagues. They're progressive. You can see that if you read through them all. They're progressive. You don't have to hit rock bottom in order to get squared away with God and get your life turned around. If you don't know what that expression is, that's uh, common in, um, in addiction counseling or groups. Uh, You've got to hit rock bottom. You've got to get to the end of yourself where the only place 
left to look is up because you're so flat on your back you can't go anywhere. Yeah, you're, you've ruined your life, you've ruined everything, just look up. That's all that's left. That's called rock bottom. This is exactly where the Egyptians were. They were rock bottom. And the Israelites were at different times in their history as well. They were so depressed and so destroyed that the only place left to look for is God, up. And that's not necessary, however. If that's what it takes, thank God that he's willing to take you through it progressively take you through it till you do hit rock bottom that's a gift from God that will save you in the end number four what's bugging some people is what or who we stand for nothing personal it's not always rational which is why Jesus said to rejoice in it persecution two of the nine beatitudes in Matthew 5 from Jesus have to do with persecution why well Moses was a hated man to the Pharaoh not to the rest of the Egyptians, but to the Pharaoh. He was a hated man because of what he stood for. He's speaking for God, Yahweh God, the God of the universe. And you know what? When we speak for God, do our job and speak up and represent God in the way we live, the way we talk, the things we say, we can expect it too. Jesus said it. The mark of a genuine disciple is going to be not popularity, but persecution. It happened to Jesus I mean, Jesus didn't go to the cross because he was so popular. He went to the cross because of what he represented and who he represented. And that does scare us off a little bit, but that's part of the deal. We want to represent God. Not everybody is going to like us for it. Number five, God's patient but not a fool. Don't play chicken or treat him like a servant. He's no tame lion, you know. That expression comes from Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. I think it's Mr. Beaver who says it to Lucy. He's no tame lion, you know, uh, talking about Jesus, the lion, Aslan, in the story. That's Jesus. I think it's pretty good to keep in mind. He's alive. He's real. Uh, don't play games with God. If God right now is talking to you about where you stand, your relationship with God, or something in your life that you know you should ditch. Or something you should do. Then I recommend you do it. In good faith effort. It might not be easy. It might take a long time. But none of this, oh God, buzz off, not now. Or, yeah, maybe someday when this particular addiction or habit or value of mine hurts too much yeah then okay God I'll give you a chance because you're always going to be there he's not a tame lion he's not to be played with when he is pulling at your heart tugging at your heart and your mind wanting you to give up to him something or even yourself just do it I can't guarantee another chance and God doesn't guarantee another chance either he doesn't like to be taken for granted played with, jerked around. He's God. I'm a tame lion. He loves us. He loves us so much that he will not let us abuse him or play games with him. Otherwise, he couldn't be God anymore if he allowed that. Father, you have revealed yourself in the scripture, and more than that, you have revealed yourself in Jesus. And you continue to reveal yourself in our lives. We offer up to you our worries, our stresses, our sins, 
our refusals, our rebellions. We give it up to you. We know you're patient, you're kind, you're loving, and you only want the best for us. So we're offering these things as a sacrifice to you. We don't want to end up like the Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and even the Israelites sometimes. We want to give over to you before it reaches those points. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the hope. Thank you for the light. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.